Welcome to High on the Hog with Meryl Schindler and co-hosts Joanna Belson and Janice Hardoon. This is a podcast about all things cannabis. Tune in every week as Meryl, Joanna, and Janice discuss the medical benefits of CBD and THC products with each other, as well as with informed guests from the cannabis industry and the lawmakers who regulate it. This is Meryl Schindler. The show is High on the Hog, the podcast. I'm here with Janice Hardoon. I'm here with Joanna Belson. I'm here with Phil Giangrande. And this is the show that deals with not the stoner aspect of Mary Juana, but the medical aspect, particularly of CBD, CBD combined with THC. Um, this is this is medical cannabis. This is this is helping us. This is stuff that uh, re- relieves, to an amazing degree, those aches and pains. And we're sitting here with Sarah Armstrong of the Americans for Safe Access, a title that doesn't really say what it is. So. It's a little vague, you know, safe access to uh, 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 to a payday loan, safe <laughs> access to what is it exactly? Medical cannabis. Okay. And that is a uh, an organization that was founded in 2002, <clears throat> and at that point it was sort of fashionable to have Americans in your title. Uh, safe access is a concept that You're you... Se- it's 17 years now. Yes. Wow. Very long time. Uh, the idea is that as an American citizen, you're entitled to safe access, which is access to your medical cannabis in a clean, well regulated, safe environment. And the story that the co founder, Steph Scher, always tells is that she was in tremendous pain and meeting uh, drug dealers in parking lots to be able to access her medicine. And she would sit there and she would walk, watch people walk in and out of CVS and not have this problem. And she thought to herself, well, you know, I, I deserve that too. And that was how it all got started. She's an amazing activist, as is the co-founder, Don Duncan. And in 2005, Don Duncan opened a little dispensary in West Hollywood called LAPCG. He had come from the Berkeley Patients Group in uh, Northern California, he was part of that that founding uh, membership, and had, over the years, come to a lot of conclusions about how to make safe access safe in the dispensary realm. And he sat down with, uh, first, the City Fathers in West Hollywood and got an ordinance And that is how I met him. I literally walked into his store in 2005 and told him how wonderful it was to be able to walk into a clean, well-regulated environment and buy what I needed. And he said, well, I can't promise it's gonna last because we don't have an ordinance. We're not not there yet under the law. Will you help us? Will you come down and as a patient, talk to the city council and so that's what I did. And for years, I would they would call me and I would go out. Chat. What world did you come from? I was uh, uh, the wife of a film industry executive. And I certainly wanted for nothing. I was also overeducated for that job. And so when this came up, and it was literally making it possible for me to live a normal life again after a terrible car accident, Boy, was I a fan of safe access. In uh, 
Don Duncan went to the city council in Los Angeles and found a champion, Dennis Sign, who was an ex-cop, and who had also come to the conclusion that just letting shops open willy-nilly was not a good idea, that they need to be regulated and supervised. So they sat down. It took about six months, but what they came up with was the idea of a moratorium and a registry list. And you would come forward, you would register with the city, it would be a public list that everybody had access to, and you would be given protection by the city until they could get an ordinance together. Now, this is is that what's known as the pre-ICO? Yeah, that's the 2007 pre-ICO list. Now, this, this was fairly early on. Yep. Uh, what was available at the time? At the time... I, I imagine uh, CBD was virtually an unknown thing. It was thing. unknown. Edibles were unknown. Tinctures were unknown. Uh, people had an idea about hash, and that was available. But basically, it was flour. And it was being increasingly clear that there was a real demand for this in the city of L.A. So in 2007, 182 very brave people came forward and they put their name on a list. And when they did that, they subjected themselves to years of raids, all kinds of police enforcement activities, robberies, where they could not call the cops because the cops would say to them, well, you're not really a legal business, so we're going to investigate this as your bad, not as a robbery. And I'll give you one of the, the biggest uh, sort of examples of this was the Karma Collective in the Valley. And they were broken into overnight. The police came in the morning at the request of the owner of the strip mall. They stopped investigating it as a robbery and started investigating it as an elite and illegal business, which it wasn't. It was on the 182 list. Uh, the police were so brazen and so uh, disrespectful that they defiled a religious relic while they were in the shop. It had a little, there was a little mezuzah. Was it? Am I right. saying I mean, it? Yeah, correct. Right by the door, which is. Uh, it's a safe or, passage, basically yeah. a safe passage. Right. And uh, they basically ripped it off the wall and stomped on it. And when the judge saw the footage and heard the story, she threw the case out. But by then it was too late for the Karma Collective because when you're busted like that, it's enormously difficult and expensive to reopen. And your staff doesn't come back because um, the treatment that you receive is horrible is horrible um you're in a federal raid you're handcuffed tightly behind your back made to face the wall for six hours and if you have to go to the bathroom or you have a problem well that's i can attest to that because i had my own raid and it was something that i will never forget and maybe that's when they call you the pioneer or they initiate it's your initiation into the group of it's the not, yeah. it's really hazing yeah. to the so so what what did Americans for safe access grew out of this what, well, they already existed they already existed okay what were they able to do about the situation well it took quite a while and it wasn't just Americans for safe access there was another key organization in those early days founded by a Costa Rican um, 
uh, a woman of Costa Rican ancestry named Yamalith Bolanos. And Yami Bolanos uh, was one of the people on that 182 list. She was a true pre-ICO. She organized an, an organization called the Greater Los Angeles Collective Alliance, Alliance, of which Janice is a board member still. And um, she said to people, if you, as an immigrant, she had a, a different take on it. As a person who had grown up in a, a neighborhood of immigrants, she herself was an American citizen. But she said, if you, if you want a seat at the table, you need to show people that you know how to mind your manners. And you do that by self-policing yourself and by self-regulating. And working with Dawn, she came up with a whole laundry list of things that you should be doing in your shop to make sure it's safe for everyone. For instance, Glyca has a rule. You may not come into the shop more than once a day and buy something. Now that seems like an odd rule. It's certainly not something that happens at Macy's. But what you don't want is street dealers walking in, buying small amounts, selling them and coming back again and again. So that was a good rule. And a lot of the rules that you saw coming out of GLACA, uh, out of Yami and Don's collaboration, as well as the rest of the operators, were common sense rules that are even today you find in the, the LA ordinance. Now there's protections that as an activist I knew should be in, for instance, Prop D, uh, under Prop D, the city may not give your information to the federal government. And the reason for that is that it's still illegal at the federal level. So you don't want the city profiting from your tax monies, but setting you up for a federal bus. Right. It's, it's been the great question of those who come out here, uh, go to one of the dispensaries, spend a lot of money on, on product, and then try to take it back to New York City where... Um, you know, the chances that they'll look in the luggage are as ever smallish. But if they do, oh boy. Well, yeah, because you're carrying a, a pretty significant amount. Across state lines, say. et cetera, et cetera. To and they to, don't, you know, I've never had coming into California a problem. But I'll tell you, for years, every time I flew out, I would get one of those tags in my luggage from the TSA, is yeah. it? Yeah. That they've opened your luggage? Yes, and looked that around they to see what your clothes find. or smoke your weed? <laughs> well, the weed was still there. The clothes were kind of messed up. But they, they seem to be more interested in things like explosive devices and stuff like that. And now that. in today's world, you get a pass from the LAX airport. It's in their airport guidelines. They do tell you to throw it away, though, before you leave. They just changed it where you can fly within California and no one's going to bother you with it. They just, they, they have like flyers right. around LAX. It's pretty cool. Do they have the green boxes that they were going to put up so you could throw it away? Nope. Oh, oh they can just travel great. with. What a shit. That, um, those green boxes, the people behind it, when Sarah went to put her stuff in the green box, I want to be behind Sarah. And um, uh, the green box, it's like just sitting there open like a big um, uh, garbage can. Anybody can reach in there and like help themselves, maybe? No, I don't think no, they're designed that seen way. That. Oh, I, I fear probably not. I it's like sad. that. But, you know, it, it took an enormous amount of time to get to the point where we are today because we had no help. No lawyers, no press, agents, 
no lobbyists would work we with us. We had press, but usually it was not positive press. Yeah, was, and remember what, what, you know, what works today is still very complicated. The rules are, if anything, as Janice can certainly attest, as you can certainly attest, more complicated than they've ever been. There are so many hoops to jump through. And you spent your day as a hoop jumper. Well, That's why I get back in my hula hoop. <laughs> you do. There's over 300 pages of regulations at the state level and over 100 locally. And do they come up with like a new one every day? They sort of like, you know, over their, their, their uh, dry martini, they keep going, you know, if only we restricted people from wearing sandals <laughs> in the shoes, <laughs> sandals in the stores. I know sandals are a bad thing to wear in the stores. Um, they haven't gotten quite that far, but I will say that it's an ongoing process of overreaching and then taking it back when they realize what a bad idea and how workable it is. And to the credit of the city of Los Angeles, they've actually been a little bit more thoughtful about the process than the state level because the state is burdened by uh, a whole trajectory of uh, ways that you you put new regulations on the books. There's gotta be a comment period. There's this, there's that. The city has been much more ingenious about it and then they've watched very closely what's going on and then periodically rules committee will gather everything and go through it and it'll pass through rules and then it'll go to the full council. And this is a much happier situation because if you don't, if they've got a bad idea, you can actually go down there, write letters, talk to them, uh, public comment. They listen very carefully to public comment after over 10 years of never listening at all. You go down on a day when it's cannabis day and every seat in the city council, and it's a huge room, and, and the walls, people are leaning against the walls. And they listen to everything that everybody says. They talk, uh, they accept written comment, which is very helpful, and they really think about it. And if something's not working, they fix it right now, right here. And I'll give you a good example. Under the social equity program, um, until very recently, if you were the social equity candidate and you wanted to sell out of the social equity business, you had to offer Please explain the term social equity. Social equity means the redress of harms done by uh, the drug ward individuals. And there's certain criteria for being a social equity candidate. So that you must have a California cannabis felony conviction. You must have been in an impact zone, which is an over-policed, a zone where uh, they just went crazy and busted way too many people for much too little. Um, there's several tiers for social equity to give people different life circumstances. But because of the um, 2009 voter initiative, which got rid of entitlement programs, social equity is not a gender-based or a race-based program. And in fact, there is uh, one woman on my SEC board, who's a tier one candidate, who's uh, every bit as Caucasian as I am. It has to do with the harm done to you by the war on drugs, and that's the only criteria. You can be any color, any gender, whatever. So they had told the social equity candidates, you must offer your share of the business 
to your partners at a market rate. And people went crazy. They said, if this program is meant to redress harm, then you must address the idea that I'm building a business and I'd like to leave that business to my children, not my business partners. So you need to figure out a way now that I can do that. And people stood up again and again and again at public comment. They wrote letters, everything. And the city saw the wisdom of it and said, okay, you don't have to do that anymore. And that took place over 90 days. At the state level, it has taken two years to get anything that looks like a permanent regulation on the books. Do you catch no sympathy from any of the regulators <laughs> you know, who recognize, from all the people coming in saying, it helped, it helped uh, me? I will tell saved, you this, like my, my accountant life. says to me, the alphabet city, which we call the, the now the CDTFA, the IRS, every franchise tax board or whatever, he goes, that's what you do for a living. Be prepared for the letters. And they have, they don't care. They think that we're just gonna generate revenues for them and they're gonna solve all of their revenue problems. I mean, it sort of reminds me of jury duty to go like to <laughs> no, left field. No, it's worse. Because it's in jury worse. duty, there are no longer any At excuses. At least jury duty, you get you get out of it after a certain amount of time. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> you used to be able to say, I don't know, I just don't feel like it. And that would be, you could get Unless you're a it. felon, then you get out of jury duty. Well, there's maybe a Then you have the there. social equity program. Right. So it all, they're all connected. Um, but, you know, it was, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've sat there in the jury duty selection and, and heard stories that are so, you know, a teacher, she goes back to school the next day, class begins the next day, sorry, rejected. It's like, what, what, what? And then they'll, they'll excuse people for wearing the wrong color socks. It's just the strangest thing. No, all um, I have to do is present my business card. I'm automatically excused. It's so funny. Oh, they, they'll escort you out of the bank, too, if you tell them what you really do. Yeah, then you're excused you're from your bank You're excused from your bank I was up for jury duty, um, and it was a... The trial was for damages against a popular bar in Santa Monica where I had not only been, but which I had written about. And I said, I know it well. I've written about mm-hmm. it. What's the owner? You know, it's it's a great place. You're and they definitely said, out of well, there. Well, can you can you put that aside? I went, no. It was the same <laughs> way that the, the one before that was. I, I we all have our adventures. Was um, I was basically you know I was going to be on the jury I think, and um, the people came in you know had like knives tattooed on their necks, and the public defender said, now if you were to discover that uh, the defendant was in a gang, would you be able to? Put that aside. I went. No, not a. Ch- are you kidding me? What? No. No. Well, don't you believe that they're innocent until proven guilty? No, I believe in the Napoleonic Code. They're guilty until proven innocent. I think that's a good idea. So it, you know, it's in in this case, it's um, for those listening. I don't necessarily agree with everything the you know. says. I need that infomercial like byline. <laughs> but in this case, it's you know they're. You're, you're, you're hacking your way with a big old machete through a lot of crazed laws. Sarah well, has done more than hack her way through all this they, stuff for. They have a process. And if you understand it and you work with it, you can see results. It's people who just stand up and scream their aggrievement but have no solutions that drive the regulators crazy. Mm-hmm. And they quickly, one of the things that they teach you in ASA trainings is that anytime you face an elected official, a public servant, whatever, stay calm, stay reasonable, dress like they dress, 
be the adult in the room. Do not lose your temper. Do not cry. To be perfectly modern, uh, sound more like Michael Cohen than like Roger Stone. That's exactly. You know, it's, uh, you know, which one is screaming and and banging his fist and, you know, throwing, holding his breath so he turns blue. Exactly. And I was told from my attorneys that when these new regulators come to your store to ask you questions, ask them if they would like something to drink, a cup of coffee or some water. Yeah. (laughs) Basic rule. Yeah. Just. Do you offer them CBD water? No, never. Basic rule, you know, they're so rarely treated like human beings that it's probably they're they're touched to be treated like human beings. Well, they're they're not. Uh, Lori Ajax is probably the best advantage uh, example of this. So somebody who came over from the alcohol end of things, who was appointed by Governor Brown, who's highly socialized, very intelligent, and quickly realized she didn't know anything about the people she was going to be regulating. But she was honest about that, too, and that was the greatest thing about her. And she will, you, anytime she's in public speaking, you can go up afterwards, talk to her. Uh, If you happen to be part of the listening session, she is fully engaged. She is not playing with her phone. She is not. And over a three-year period, they had... We've had her three years already? I think so. Oh, my gosh. Oh, time flies. And we had numerous examples of the regulars becoming progressively more and more reasonable as they became more and more educated. We've had three sets of regulations at the state level, each of them um, from all different departments that regulate. We only had our permanent regulations just recently. You must and be driven crazy by having to deal with regulations in 50 states. I only think about California and Los Angeles right. because you can't. There is nobody out there that can. It is simply uh, a fast-moving field, no. and it is driven by local concerns. It's it's very much grassroots, grassroots local uh, effort in the beginning before it ever gets Do you remember Cal- uh, Colorado was ahead of California and also Where? a couple of other states? So, you know, though California is certainly the medical, the, the, the big one. Yeah, ne- um, 1996 for medical. You know, it's... Um, so we lead the yeah. pack on that. Look, uh, there's an, a tremendous amount of unforeseen consequences when you have a social and economic revolution, which is what the cannabis industry is in L.A., and there's just too many unintended consequences, too much you didn't couldn't even see coming down the street. So it it behooves everybody to be as patient as possible and keep pushing forward. If the city does not uh, does not always address cannabis issues in the way we would like, they have been opening to li- open to listen more open recently than ever before listening to what people have to say and how they feel about it. And as a result, we're heading towards an enormous industry here in L.A. It's a very liberal city and a very liberal yeah. state. I mean, it is what you would, yeah. well, hopefully, hopefully, in a blue state at least. Yes. Uh, it's what you would kind of hope for. What do you see happening in the future? Where, where is, you know, a year from now, where will you be? Five years from now, where, where will this whole business be? Well, right now... Um, 
it takes a champion to bring your issue forward in any political fight. And our great champion has been President Wilson, president of the LA City Council, an experienced politician who was at the state assembly before that. He's termed out now, he's leaving. And that's a real issue for us because if we want things to keep growing and go ahead, we need a champion. He is running for a supervisor in uh, the county. I hope he wins, I think it'll be wonderful. Reggie Joyne Sawyer, I understand, would like to have her Wesson seat. And of all the scenarios I could think of, that's the best one because nobody has been uh, more forward thinking than he has about cannabis in LA. He tried, uh, almost committed political suicide trying to get us a carve out because we had eliminated immunity rather than licensing for quite a while. He, uh, he he's so funny. He turned to uh, somebody who said marijuana and he said, well, it's not marijuana, it's cannabis. It is cannabis. And that was a great moment for me because honestly, most of them talk about it as it's weed or it's the, they have other, you know, Names from back in the day. Yeah, they're from Those back in the Those of us who are, who are modern see cannabis. But for somebody like the people in this room, all of whom are over 21. Barely. And many, I for certain am a, I'm of retirement age, to be able to walk into a clean, well-regulated environment where the medicine I'm using has been tested, there's dosages on the package, um, the people there are knowledgeable about the product, I would hope that in time it would be a little less expensive, but believe me, that's the least of my worries. Because without this medicine, I'm in a lot of pain and I don't function very well. Marijuana, cannabis, whatever you wanna call it, when it's properly grown and properly cured and brought into the marketplace in a regulated way is a gift. It's a gift to people who have pain issues. and. I would not want to take that gift away from anyone. You know, I really have to sort of end it on that note because it's such a good note. How can people get in touch with uh, Americans for Safe Access? Simply go to our website, safeaccessnow.org. You will Safe see... Safe Access Now? Yeah. .org. Safeaccessnow.org. And there we is... accept all donations and support. <laughs> yes. You can absolutely uh, join the organization for as little as $37 a year. Um, we have a conference coming up in uh, Washington, D.C. I'm sorry, I can't tell you the exact dates. I didn't write them down, but it's right there on the website. Once you get into that website, there's everything you need to know to become an activist everything you need to know about the history of how marijuana politics went forward. There's years and years of blogs by people like Don Duncan and Steph Shear. I've written a few. It's a huge website with something for everyone. And Engineer Phil said, uh, you want to know about, about um, uh, attorneys. attorneys, attorneys who deal with the issue. I assume this is a growing world. It's, it, for a while, the only attorneys that were dealing with it were defense attorneys. And right now we're very blessed in Los Angeles because we have not only um, good lawyers for cannabis, we have good lawyers thinking creatively about cannabis. And one of the greatest ones is 
Aaron LaShawn of Nelson and Handelman. He is by far, he was one of the first non-defense attorneys to opt right. in, along with Steve Lubell, who was a former... Uh, Prosecuting judge. He was a, he was a uh, uh, commissioner on the judicial bench dealing with um, crimes. Crime. So, so J- Jacoby and Myers is not where you go. No, no. Uh, it, it it is of the utmost important that, importance that if you are busted um, for a marijuana or a cannabis offense, that you find a good defense lawyer because you've got wonderful defenses right now. If what you're looking to do is be a compliant business, that's a whole different uh, group of lawyers and they typically have uh, large teams because they have to deal with everything from CEQA to... Rules and regulations and mm-hmm. packaging and... Blueprints, you have to split. Right, blueprints oh and safe access and network servers and security plans. It goes on it's and on. The, Just big dollars. Do you sleep? No. No. no, no, no. I take my THC and CBD. <laughs> Sarah Armstrong from Americans for Safe Access, thank you very, very much. And Janice Hardoon and uh, Joanna Nelson and Phil Gianbrandi. It's Meryl Schindler. It's High on the Hog, the podcast. Join us next time to learn a whole lot more about the wonderful world of CBD and THC.